Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagles Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at ococean.com. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. One thing that doesn't get talked about as I've reviewed this case is the anger that can build up in a traumatized child. When both brothers got together, whenever you have that dynamic, if you will, there was more power behind what they were going to do. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime, and every once in a while, we bring you a legend, and that's happening tonight. This is an STS special event. Uh, as you know by now, Lyle and Eric Menendez were convicted of the grisly 1989 shotgun murders of their parents, Jose and Mary Louise Kitty Menendez. Uh, it happened at the family's sprawling Beverly Hills mansion. Uh, they've been uh, behind bars ever since. Uh, but do they have a new shot at freedom after a bombshell letter that we're going to get into surfaced recently? as well as the release of a new documentary supporting the brothers' claims of sexual abuse by their dad, Jose Menendez. Tonight, you're going to hear from an original expert witness for the defense and a friend of the show, the great Dr. Ann Burgess. If you don't know her yet, you will for sure by the end of this show. She is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse, 
and the author of A Killer by Design, Murders, Mindhunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. Among her many awards and accolades in 2016, she was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing. Not a lot of people can say that they've actually been named a living legend while they're still alive. So there you go. She has also worked with the FBI Academy uh, Special Agents to study serial offenders and the links between child abuse, juvenile delinquency, and subsequent perpetration. If you know the super successful Netflix show Mindhunter about the FBI's first day of criminal profiling, well, that's loosely based on Ann Burgess's work as they are working on another show about her work currently right now. Dakota Fanning and her sister are doing that. And then uh, another powerhouse. This is the Boston duo right here. You do not mess with these two women. You've got Wendy Murphy. She serves as an adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston, where she also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. She is a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law School. Uh, Wendy prosecuted child abuse and sex crimes cases for many, many years, so we cannot have two finer guests. If I heard Ann correctly, big shout out to the Newton Mass Police Department. They are uh, apparently watching this evening. Go law enforcement, go Newton Mass. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We are at Podcast STS. Uh, you can follow us or support us on Patreon as well as YouTube. And the merch store is open. Uh, someone sent me a picture today. They're working out in an STS shirt. Don't miss out. Get your STS shirt. Maybe we'll make a mug with Ann Burgess on it. How about that? Um, so uh, before we get to Dr. Ann Burgess, let, let me actually throw a curveball and start here with Wendy Murphy. Uh, Wendy, your old friend, uh, Mark Garagos, famed criminal defense attorney. He filed a uh, uh, motion in court to have this case either retried or... Uh, to see if we could vacate the conviction. Um, what are the chances, in your opinion, that this does, in fact, happen? Well, you know, the odds are never good when you're trying to challenge a conviction, especially years and years later. Um, looking just in general at numbers, the odds are terrible that this will, this will succeed. However, if you compare this case to the kinds of cases where a sense of enlightenment or the new development of DNA technology has come into the picture where something truly revolutionary has entered the story in terms of the evidence that we know now versus what we knew then, then your odds go up dramatically. So in my view, there's a good chance this will succeed whether it succeeds in terms of a, a new trial being granted or just an outright let the guys go, um, I mean, I think he has a better chance of just getting the conviction overturned and a new trial will be ordered. And then it's more of a political question. Will the DA say, well, I'm not going to waste the public's resources retrying these guys because they've been in for almost three decades. Why, why go through all this again when... In fact, the evidence we're going to talk about tonight supports the claim that they shouldn't have been in prison this long anyway. I mean, most people would say this is at best a manslaughter case. And if true, they would have been out by now. So if he wins just what feels like not a complete victory, but a motion for a new trial, 
so they reverse the conviction and let the trial uh, happen again, I think we won't see another trial and they will be released from prison. But it's anybody's guess. The one thing I want to say to Garagos, I wish he was watching, and I hope he is watching. He might come on tomorrow to follow this up at around 12 noon Eastern. So we're waiting to hear from him. But I will ask him Good. whatever you're about to Well, I would have said to him, if I'd known he was doing this, let me sign on with you. Because there's nothing better when you're a defense attorney trying to overturn a conviction uh, in a murder case than to have a, you know, a well-known advocate for victims, not all due respect to Dr. Burgess. I mean, she was the expert in the case. She, they might think she doesn't have objectivity. She's biased, et cetera. But, you know, for someone like me, because I was on TV constantly at the time and I remember not knowing a lot at all about the abuse and thinking, oh, these horrible boys should go to prison for the rest of their lives. These greedy sons of bitches, they just wanted money because that was what I was being told. And that was what the evidence was. And that's what came out. And that was the overwhelming picture. That was the narrative. So, I mean, I really like it when somebody's filing a motion for new trial, whether right after the conviction or decades later, and you can team up a defense attorney, especially somebody like Mark. We, I don't think we've ever agreed on any case ever in the history of our of our time as pundits on television, this is one where we could have agreed. And I think it's a lot stronger when you can go to the judge and say, this isn't just me as a defense attorney being an advocate for my clients. This is me and the lawyers who are usually on the other side agreeing with me, this conviction should be overturned. So you tell that to Mark Garagos. Well, he's famous, but he's obviously not that smart if he didn't bring you on. So I will, uh, I will mention it, and maybe you will get, a, maybe you will get a call from him tomorrow. Um, one more legal question, just for the lay people. So he filed; it's called a writ of habeas corpus. What does that mean in English? And he filed this a while ago. I don't have the days in front of me, but he is quoted as saying uh, he was expecting to hear from the court within forty-five days, and we're we've got to be coming up on that fairly soon. Um, but what is a writ of habeas corpus? Well, it, if you're asking me for the Latin definition, I just think it means bring us the body. Um, but mm. in terms of why it's a habeas corpus uh, action at this point, it's because he's, they've exhausted all their appeals. So it's really not technically an appeal because they did appeal and they lost. And they may have had multiple appeals. I don't know off the top of my head. But the time for a regular appeal has come and gone. Many decades later, the mechanism you use as a lawyer to essentially appeal again is a habeas corpus petition. You can't call it an appeal. You call it a habeas petition. But the effect of it is you're getting another bite at the appellate apple. Um, but, the, but the habeas corpus language basically means, look, somebody's in prison and we want the body. That's what habeas corpus means. Give us the body. And, and you're really, you know, the Latin is correct. We want the body out of prison because they oughtn't be behind bars. Really, you know, to boil it down to, to the simplest way I can, it's a procedural device to file what is effectively an appeal, but it literally means give us the body. These guys should not be behind bars. Their bodies should be released. Um. For those of you who don't know, uh, Wendy Murphy and Anne, uh, not only are they uh, sort of legendary in each of their fields, but they did a ton of TV and continue to do. Uh, but this case, as Wendy alluded to, for those of you who are a little bit younger, was the biggest case going in America. It was all over the place. Um, you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't miss it if you flipped on the news in the early 90s. 
Um, and just to kind of give a quick recap here, uh, for those who do not know, the Menendez brothers, Lyle and Eric, they're serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Uh, they were both convicted of first-degree murder for fatally shooting both of their parents. Um, they were each tried separately the first time, and each of those juries were deadlocked. So then they were tried together. And in that second trial, the judge essentially, and I'll ask Wendy about this a little bit, because I don't think this would ever happen in 2023, but would not allow in any of the sexual abuse. But now on to Dr. Ann Burgess. Um, Ann, how did you how did you become involved with this case originally? Take us back to that period of time. What were you doing back then and how were you asked to get involved? Well, back then, I was just minding my own business and teaching and <laughs> doing the usual uh, academic uh, things. And I got a call from John Conti. Now, John Conti was uh, in Chicago and then out in Seattle, Washington, one of the uh, best uh, advocates, if you will, for teaching about abuse of children. And he was one of the founders of ABSAC, which is a, a an organization that really speaks for the victim. And he called and he just said, have you heard about the case, this Menendez case? And I hadn't. <laughs> he told me to go look at the People magazine where it was written up that, and he says, the purple cover, and you can read all about it. So I did. I bought a People's magazine. I read all about these two brothers that had uh, had shotgunned their, their parents. And in the, in the meantime, he had asked, it's kind of what they do, where they get somebody to, I think attorneys, maybe Wendy can clarify this, will get somebody to call on their behalf to see if they're interested in the case rather than just doing uh, calling themselves. But anyway, I said I would. So uh, I got a call from, um, uh, let's see, it wasn't much later that I got a call from, I guess, I'm, I'm not sure if it was actually from Leslie, probably was from Leslie Abramson, who was the lead attorney for Eric. Now, John had agreed to be the uh, expert for Lyle, and his attorney was Jill. Well, got Jill's last name. So anyway, uh, Leslie called and we talked and she had wanted, she said, would you be interested? And since John was involved in it, I thought, okay, I will. <laughs> uh, and anyway, I've later learned I wasn't the first person that she had tried. Uh, Leslie's a very interesting attorney and, and uh, woman. And so she later told me about it. But anyway, I went out, talked with her, talked with the, went to the prison to uh, jail. They were in jail at that time. And and talked with him and, and signed on to the uh, uh, to the case. So, uh, Wendy, back to you for a minute. Um, so again, the first trial they were each tried separately, and that's where Anne testified on behalf of Eric, which we'll get into detail about. Um, but at the time, uh, uh, when jury the jury's deadlocked, they they retried them. A judge, um, by the way, defense attorneys came out. Uh, Leslie Abramson, as um, Dr. Ann Burgett just mentioned, said that the siblings, these two brothers, feared that their parents were going to kill them after they threatened to expose the alleged abuse. But the judge steps in and deems all testimony of sexual abuse irrelevant and inadmissible. Um, were the times really that different then, Wendy? Because is this even imaginable uh, today? Well, 
some things have gotten a lot worse, especially for sexual abuse victims today compared to when I started 35 years ago. Um, and that's for another show, but by no means has everything gotten better for victims. I think Anne will agree with that. Um, but but the, the thing, I my understanding is more evidence of sexual abuse came in uh, during the first trial and less during the second. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's what I remember reading, that it was curtailed. It was not entirely excluded. And the problem was then the defense narrative felt very limp. It felt it felt very meager. Um, and I believe some jurors have since said, after finding them guilty, boy, if we had known more about that, there's no way we would have found him guilty of murder. So that's really vital because when a judge excludes evidence, if you can show prejudice, I mean, you're not supposed to ask juries what they would have done differently if this other evidence had come in. But here you have that. And, you know, you're able to make this argument. Was it prejudicial in a, in a significant way that the judge excluded this evidence that basically the judge agreed was relevant? He didn't let it all in. He let some in, which is bad for the judge, right? Because it'd be better almost for the state if the judge kept it all out. Because then the judge has made what appears to be um, a rational ruling that, that it just doesn't matter that they were sexually abused. But some came in. So now the question is, well, well why, why did you only let some of it in when, when now we can show that the jury is actually saying, had we known how, how, how life was for them and how bad it really, it really was, this wasn't just a one-off grab of the fanny. You know, this was severe stuff. And, and so I think the curtailing part is better for the defense at this stage. I also, you know, I, I also think what's a little bit better for us today, and I, by us, I mean advocates for victims who are trying to get the court system to understand the nature of trauma, to understand that sometimes people do things because they really have to. I mean, I hate to say it, no one should ever kill anyone. There's no justification for killing, period. Even if you're being raped every single day, the, the, what, what matters to the law is if you're killing because you're defending yourself. This is the way technically works. If you, if you are threatened, if your life is threatened or someone else's life is threatened, you can kill in self-defense or in defense of another. What you can't do is kill because you're angry that you got raped. But can you kill if you're being raped? Yes, the law allows that. Can you kill if you're being beaten severely? Yes, the law allows for that. This case kind of sits in the middle. This is where uh, two boys over the period of many, many years suffered not only horrendous sexual abuse, but also physical abuse and perhaps even more importantly, mental abuse, where they couldn't even think straight about what was going on in their lives, nor could they reasonably expect to ever be able to defend themselves against a monster, a monster and a mother who refused to protect them and she knew what was going on. So talk about feeling utterly helpless and that your life is on the line and you finally get to the age where you can say to your parents, I'm going to tell on you. And your father, who is a zillionaire and will lose his business overnight if you tell, of course is going to react in a way that makes you feel like your life is in danger because you've elevated it for good reason. But you've elevated this. This isn't all anymore about I was sexually abused and it was so upsetting to me I killed somebody. No, this is about, and when I tried to confront my parents and say, this was unacceptable 
and and I'm going to tell someone because I need to tell someone. I'm out of my mind. I need to tell to protect myself, to be safe, and to hold you accountable. When a kid does that, and the response of the parents is, "Oh, you are hell not going to tell. Under no condition are you going to tell." Um, then your life really is in danger, and that's where I think the the, the narrative of this state lies. Uh, this story lies today. Um, that it, that it really is about the dynamic and the long-term nature of trauma that just sizzles and fizzles over time. It's not like a knife in your face or a gun in your face. It's this very slow burn that doesn't just erupt into murder, but it can erupt into that moment of confrontation, which then poses the risk that somebody's going to die. The father's going to kill someone to keep them quiet or the kids are going to kill to save themselves from being killed. That's how I feel about this case. And that's why I think they have to be let out because, because we don't, we may not have understood this 35 years ago. We may not have understood the desperation that children felt because we didn't listen to kids very well back then. And these days kids are a little bit more capable. They're more knowledgeable. We're teaching them things at a younger age about what you need to tell, who to tell, um, you know, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. These kids, these boys knew when they were little that what was going on was wrong. But did they have an opportunity to tell? Absolutely not. Were they, were they completely enslaved by their family situation? Absolutely. Do you expect slaves to be able to protect themselves from their master? No. So, you know, now that we see it in that light, and maybe it took both distance and a little bit of enlightenment, culturally speaking, We've reached the point where we can not only let them out, but apologize for keeping them in. Wow. Uh, it definitely toes that delicate uh, legal line, uh, no doubt about it. I was told that, the, uh, well, I know both Menendez brothers are married. I was told that the wives uh, have been watching some of these episodes and that they watch, believe it or not, uh, inside the prison outside of San Diego. And I bet you right now they're saying we better hire Wendy Murphy. Uh, we, better, we better get in touch with Jericho. So I will not be surprised. Just promise me, Wendy, when they call you that you'll let us know. Um, so uh, Sally says, oh, wow, Wendy Murphy's back. This will be interesting. No doubt every time Wendy's on, uh, this will be interesting. At the time of the murders, they came off as smarmy rich boys who murdered their parents and went out to spend the money, which is what Wendy alluded to, uh, and then kind of had a change of heart. Uh, GX says, we cannot lose you again, Dr. Ann Burgess. What Wendy doesn't know is we had her on a couple of weeks ago and she had a bad connection, which is why we oh. are re reconnecting now, but we will not lose her. So, um, Ann, back to you here. Tell me, I mean, I know you interviewed Eric, uh, according to the reports I read, for over 50 hours and you ultimately determined uh, that he was telling the truth about his history of physical, psychological uh, and sexual abuse. Can you recall the first time that you were these in-person interviews? Um, what was your initial reaction? How did it sort of change over the over the course of time as you continue to speak to him? Well, one of the things that was very interesting about this case is that there were two juries. And sometimes um, as we developed what I was going to be testifying to, sometimes I would just speak to one to Eric's jury. But very often they brought me in on both juries. And what I was trying to do at that point was to, as, as Wendy was saying, trying to give them some of the current research of that time. Don't forget, this is back in the 90s, about the fear response and the um, 
I, I can remember and what we call the neurobiology of trauma. That was just coming into the literature. Wow. I had written on it. Other people had written on it. It was really the decade of the brain, the 90s, when so much research was going on with that. And so trying to impress upon the jury how the brain works when they're feared, when they're under fear. And I can remember talking, one of the research projects was the Appalachia snail. Now, the snail is a very, I won't go into all of that I talked about, but what does a snail do? But it withdraws, you know, you agitate it and it withdraws. And so that's what these brothers had done for so long. And how long can that go on? There comes a point when they're just not going to do it anymore. And the one thing that doesn't get talked about, I think, as I reviewed this case, is the anger that can build up in a traumatized child or a, a person. And I think that's when they have the, the, when both brothers got together, whenever you have that dynamic, if you will, there was more power behind what they were going to do. Jose Menendez was unbelievably controlling. I mean, the, the, the examples that we tried to bring out, uh, family members, uncles and aunts would come over and they couldn't go to talk with the brothers if Jose had them. They had to stay out. I mean, it was incredible the the um, how intimidated they felt. These are just family members. I remember in talking with one of the teachers that the teachers were intimidated. If they got a bad grade, those parents would go in, and especially Jose, and so frightened the teachers that they would, you know, give the A or whatever it was. And I, I was thinking at, at the time, I said, I couldn't believe that parents would come in to a teacher. I, I've never had that experience and luckily haven't since. But at any rate, I, I just wanted to impress upon you how controlling Jose was. I, I, if you don't understand that, it's, it's, a, it's a hard case. But the other big thing is the times. These are male on male, pedophilic kind of behavior. And it's incest. And what are the, we could hardly talk about female being abused by males, let alone uh, males abusing their own child, their own son. So we had a lot of, uh, of backwinds, you could say, in moving forward. But I testified actually to that. I spent a lot of time on that. And I know how people kept saying, do you believe them? Do you believe them? And I thought, they were on the stand for days. And I thought if people couldn't themselves listen to Eric or Lyle talk about what went on and couldn't make their mind up, of course, they had made their mind up in the first trial. Um, that was a mistrial. They they couldn't get, I think it split uh, six and six if there were 12, I think it was that. So, and that's when all of the abuse was able to get in. Obviously, second trial wasn't allowed in. So, it was, they could run their narrative of these are just rich kids. I can remember thinking, yeah, they, they, they were rich, but they never needed money. The father always gave them money. There was, they were not without money. So if it wasn't money, what else could it be? Uh, and I know that was my thinking at the time. I tried to rule out everything I possibly could, but it came back down to it was the control, the abuse, the the uh, not being able to talk about it. Uh, by the way, I watched this testimony. It's on the YouTube. And uh, Dr. Ann Burgess looks younger today than she did then. <laughs> today, I could barely get through the day. My four-year-old was driving me crazy. I felt like I was walking through mud. 
I need to start. I don't know. Uh, what's the word? I need to. Uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word. But anyway, I need to become more like Anne. Let's put it that way and uh, get that get that energy. But Anne, let's take a two second detour here. Uh, I'm so jealous. I want to be named a living legend, Carly says. <laughs> and what is the secret to your success? Is it that you have such a passion for what you do? Um, you know, you're still going strong all these years later. Uh, let, let, let the audience in on this. How does someone, you know, there's that famous book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. You've got to put 10,000 hours in. You've definitely done that. But what is it that makes you so successful in what you do, well, I, I, I think I get access to wonderful people that can work and work in the field. I mean, I just look at Wendy. I haven't seen Wendy in years, but you, you feel like it hasn't been that long. Yeah. Um, and and there are, were so many people that were, it was a time when you wanted to do something. We were seeing these, uh, the maltreatment of kids, especially, was... Uh, very prominent and not getting anywhere in the courts. And the women, I, I, I hand it to the second movement for the women that got this all going. They put the pressure on to get rape and sexual assault on the front burner and to do something about the problem. So I just happened to be, at the time, I, I really Look at Linda Holmstrom. She was the one that got me into this. I didn't know anything about this. And she taught me the kind of research that really made a difference. It was doing the actual interview, bringing the material to the to the um, great crisis person. So I'd have to say being able to work, with, and I think law enforcement, I was very fortunate in, in being able to meet up with um, um, Bob Ressler and, and, and his um unit down at uh, Quantico. So all of it kind of came together. And once you get something going, I've just gone into other areas of the same issue. But uh, right now, the, the whole issue of elders and nursing homes is horrendous. I, I mean, I just, you know, it just seems to never stop. So I just answer you with um, having an opportunity to get the information out and then seeing it happen. By the way, the word I was looking for that I couldn't find with my senior moment was channel. I'm going to get a shirt that says channel your inner Anne, STS. We'll have a shirt. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Patty Girl says, wonderful women you have there with you. Heart emojis followed by Sarah Ann. Bostonian here. Love seeing this Boston duo on STS. Best guest. You can say that again. Um, to you, Wendy Murphy. So one of the there's pieces of evidence, if you could call them that, that are are new in this uh, saga, this decades long saga. One of them is a documentary called Menendez and Menudo uh, Boys Betrayed. Uh, and I've been in touch with the directors who are not ready to speak publicly yet because they're still working on some stuff. But in that, a former member of the boy band Menudo, which, of course, is where Ricky Martin came from. There were a lot of members of this band over time. But this guy, Ray, uh, Roy, I should say, Roy Rossello, uh, he alleges in this docuseries that Jose Menendez molested, drugged, and raped him um, when he was performing with this Puerto Rican boy band. Jose Menendez, he was the head of RCA Records. And he says in this documentary, that's the man here that raped me um, in this clip. That's the pedophile. It's time for the world to know the truth. Um, 
does this hold water in a court of law or is it more for a court of public opinion or both? Wow, that's a really hard question to answer simply because the answer is it might be relevant in a court of law. Um, a judge has discretion to let in what's called a prior bad act. In this case, another sexual assault incident or multiple ones um, involving another person. Uh, because, you know, the courts say, well, we can't we can't let a jury just think he's such a bad guy. Let's just find him guilty. But on the other hand, if someone has a pattern or if they are a repeat sex offender, you don't want to deny to the jury uh, evidence showing that they um, have not so much a propensity, but but like a pattern that they that they target certain boys, certain ages, or they have an inclination to do certain things in certain ways. Um, it's really it's really important, I think, that jurors know someone um, is not like what they appear. This is where I would come down as a judge. My my inclination would be to stop focusing on whether it's unfair to let the jury hear about all this past stuff. What I would say is, look, this guy, this dead father, this so-called victim of this case, had enormous wealth. And he was able to manufacture for himself a reputation that is going to mislead the jury to find these boys guilty because they think he's a certain type of guy. They think he's an upstanding member of the community. Maybe he donates to the boys club or whatever. And a lot of perpetrators do exactly that to insulate themselves from suspicion in the event they do get caught. So to, to kind of fight back against that, I would want the jury to hear what kind of guy he really is. And that would mean to me allowing other evidence of other victimizations to come in. Because once the jury is willing to let the bloom off the rose and see this guy as just a regular guy, they're more likely to assess the evidence fairly. And that's what we want. We don't want anybody being judged unfairly. We want it to be done fairly. But there's almost an unfair advantage to perpetrators like this because they have this glimmer and gloss, Beverly Hills, you know, lots of money. That's not the type of guy who does this, not to mention the stuff about male on male and, you know, um, incestuous style of, of, of pedophilia. It's, and I even hate that word pedophilia because it literally means child love. And this is the opposite of child love, right? There should be another word called like, whatever the Greek word is for hatred. That's what it should be changed to. But I digress. Um, so for me, the most important thing as a judge and as an advocate for victims, what I say as often as I can in any space where I can when I talk about these issues, because again, I've been doing this for 35 years and what I've confronted when I've tried cases is jurors being reluctant to believe that the perpetrator is the type of person who would do this. The other reluctance they have is understanding why. And jurors would say this to me, well, I, why would he do this? It makes no sense. If you've got a lot of money, you can just go pay a prostitute, right? You don't have to rape your own kid. Why would someone do this? And I would always argue to jurors, just to relieve them of that burden in their brain, you don't have to understand why this guy did it. He may not understand why. Your job is, is just to understand who you believe. Is the evidence credible? And if you find the evidence credible, usually that meant if you find the victim credible, then your obligation is to is to is to vote guilty. You don't have to understand the why. The problem is humans want to understand the why. 
And if you can't give it to them, they are more likely to vote not guilty. So for a case like this, where I would feel that pressure that this this guy's going to walk and it has nothing to do with the evidence. It has everything to do with the predisposition, the kind of irrational predisposition of jurors to think men like that don't do things like that. That's injustice in the same way that it's injustice, you know, to lock up an innocent man. It's also injustice to not find a guy guilty because you don't think he's the type. I mean, that is just grotesque injustice in my experience. And it's a hard injustice to fix because it comes from the victim side of things. So the other thing to remember about jurors is what they're always trying to make things make sense in their gut. You know, what's their core sense of how the world works? It's not that this rich neighbor next door rapes little boys. So, so they're going to be very reluctant to believe that evidence. When it comes in, it just whooshes by because it doesn't stick to their inner sense of how the world works. How do you get jurors to accept what makes them feel terribly uncomfortable? That is the challenge of these cases still, although it's a little bit better. That part is a little bit better today because we've had so many high profile cases where seemingly nice guys did horrendous things. You know, Dream Day Ken, Scott Peterson, slices up his his, his wife and, and, and unborn baby. Talk about Garagos another time on that case. Um, but, you know, we look at him and think he's a man who looks like that doesn't kill his pregnant wife and unborn child. Well, yes, he does because he did. And he looks like that. And you really have to get jurors comfortable with that, even though it could be that, that they don't know exactly who the dangerous people are, which scares them. People want to believe that they can look at their neighbor and know they're not dangerous, that they can look at Uncle Charlie and know that he's not dangerous. And when you start putting seemingly non-dangerous people on the stand for doing these grotesque things to children, it shakes people up and, and, it, and it's much harder to get a conviction as a result. So, you know, my, my, my problem with this case is really that, that the victim, Jose Menendez, had a terribly unfair advantage, even in death when this case went to trial, because jurors would have had a very difficult time thinking he was the type. And that was and that was partly because they were denied the evidence that you mentioned, Joel, which is this Menudo singer. And I did see that video, but that Menudo singer being able to testify, and I know he wasn't ready back then, and we have to respect that, but had that evidence been, been around back then, I would have let it in and it would have changed everything because then the jurors would have been more comfortable accepting, oh, yes, he is the type. He is. This wasn't a one-off. These aren't crazy kids. This is, this is a problem. This guy is a bad guy. Once they can turn their minds around to accept the reality that people who look like Jose Menendez are potentially child rapists, then they can judge the evidence fairly. That's what I would, you know, that's what I would argue in a case like this at this point in time is had that Menudo singer been around to testify back then. And what I mean by that is, had he been able, capable as a person to testify back then, the outcome of this case would have been dramatically different. Therefore, they have to be released because it's not that child's fault. It's not that Menudo child's fault that he wasn't capable of testifying back then. He was a terribly traumatized, sexually abused, raped little boy. You know, we can't punish him that he wasn't available to testify, but we can do the right thing now, late in the day, though it might be. Uh, Dr. Ann, um, Wendy said something interesting, which is, you know, he was a powerful, the, the victim here, Jose Menendez, uh, who could also be termed a suspect, I guess, or perpetrator. <clears throat> um, 
Wendy posed the question or posited the question, why didn't he just hire a prostitute? Um, what part of this abuse is sexual? What part of it is control, um, you know, for Jose at the time? Well, certainly the control was a major factor. He had to have everything controlled and not only his family, but also from a sexual standpoint. And as far as going to a prostitute, he probably did, you know, but he, uh, we know that um, they have polymorphous kinds of, of experiences. And I remember at the time they really, they tried to find and thought they had found someone that would come in and testify. And if I remember correctly, it was in Mexico or one of those uh, types that, and, and they just couldn't get them. And, and that's understandable. Like when they just said, you can't get at that time to try to get a teenager to come in and testify, especially when there had been some drinking or drugging and, and the fear that, oh, they're going to blame me for all of this. It's the same kind of problems that we run into all the time when there is, is the, um, uh, the use of, of drugs or alcohol. And I think that's what he did. Now, I don't know. I don't remember his doing that with his sons, but they were pretty clear in the kinds of uh, acts that the father uh, forced on them. And, you know, you don't even have to drug your own kids because you have total control over them, right? You can keep them quiet in other ways. Strangers, you might have to drug to keep them quiet, to interfere with their memory and so forth. But by, I want to toss one other thing out there, which is um, I bet he was a porn addict. Remember, he was in the was. porn industry, right? He was yeah. making gobs of dough from whatever the porn video thing was that he was involved in. So there's always a possibility when anyone's involved in the porn business that they're raping kids and making videos and selling them because they know that's a that's a big lucrative business. But even when they're not making videos of the rapes they're doing, which mm -hmm. he may not have done, but it's possible um, because he had plenty of money from other sources, right? But right. but. But if you're a porn addict, which is not a, it's not difficult for a guy to become a porn addict. And it is devastating. And I don't want to make him into a victim, but if that was part of his problem, um, you know, working in the business of, of distributing porn and not, you know, feeling like that was a delightful thing to do because everyone in the videos is having a grand old time raping God knows who, children, animals, whatever. You know, that's what porn can destroy, especially men. It can destroy their brain's ability to think straight, to have healthy relationships, to understand intimacy. Um, I wish we had found out more about him in that sense. Because, you know, wait, what's his name? The guy, the, the handsome guy that killed all those women. Um, oh, what's that handsome, handsome guy that killed all those women? Bundy. 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 Bundy was famously giving interviews in prison. He said, look, I was so addicted to porn. And that is why I killed and raped all these women. I just couldn't get enough. And, uh, and in prison, he said he'd talk to all these other guys who were in prison for raping or killing women, and they were all porn addicts. So you know, the story that may need to be told here, in addition to let's remember the experiences of these victims, is, well, what turned this... I don't know if he was ever a nice guy, but let's say he started off as a nice guy until he got into this business. What role did that business play in turning him into a beast? Well, society's in trouble if it's porn, because now it's uh, imagine how hard it was in 93. Now anyone can get it whenever they want, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Eflo knows, says, yeah, fellow Bostonian here, Boston ladies are no joke. Uh, we're going to get to this in a little while. 
uh, to show how the audience is split a little bit. The letter just appeared now. Very suspicious. We'll tell you about that letter. Uh, Becky says, hi, from Ohio. I watched the original trial and felt the brothers were telling the truth between the first and second trial. The state played calls from jail and it really made me wonder. That's interesting. Um, and to you, to Wendy's point again, did we ever, did you ever get more background on Jose himself and why potentially he was abusing his, was he abused himself? Do we know? Yeah, we weren't able to get that, but I know that, um, I, my hunch is he would also tell the brothers that this is, this is what the father does with the son. So there could have been that hook in that also. The um, um, I, I think there was some testimony around that. But as far as I, we certainly knew that the music industry or the whatever industry Jose was in certainly had certainly was selling pornography, no question about it. But they never they kept trying to find the um, child pornography, not the adult pornography. I know that was something that they had investigators looking for. And there's so much to get to uh, uh, here with you. Uh, so one of the things that you evaluated was the crime scene, which was horrific. Uh, and you determined it was an unplanned killing done with a high level of emotion. You were interviewed extensively by the Los Angeles Times at the time. I'm just looking for this one quote. Um, but you talked about how um, they were basically, uh, this is it. The night of the killings, the parents and sons got into an argument in the mansion of foyer and the parents closed the door to the TV room. You say that Eric Menendez viewed that action, the closing of the door, as a sign of imminent danger. Uh, an outsider might not view the closing of that door that way, but Eric Menendez, you said, was hyper vigilant after years of abuse. His brain biologically altered to be attuned to cues that outsiders would ignore. Was it the closing of that foyer door that's you know, they use the word snap too often, but made the boys jump into action thinking that maybe they were going to be uh, found out or, or made men. Uh, was that it? Yes. Uh, there are actually a series of, of incidents that happened that last week. It was very important to look time-wise at that very last week leading up to it. One of the incidents that had happened in the foyer is where the mother had grabbed the, um, Lyle was wearing a toupee and had grabbed the toupee and laughed and really humiliated the son right there. So those were some of the things that she would do. And then right after that is when then Jose came and they, uh, they also realized that the mother was not going to come with them. They had tried to get the mother to go with them to the East coast. Lau would go back to Princeton and they would get um, Eric, go to a East Coast college and they wanted the mother and she said no. And when that happened, they realized that there was no way that the mother was going to in any way separate from the father and they had to get away from the father. So when people say, well, gee, why was the mother killed? Well, the mother didn't protect them. So there was uh, that, that was, that wasn't, should not have been a surprise uh, that they would uh, shoot both of the parents. I mean, when this, especially that to get back to your question about when those doors closed, they were sure that something was going on. Now, later, of course, they can admit that their thinking was not clear at that time. And nobody was trying to say, well, this actually, it, it was their 
thinking was the high emotion and the low thinking is what I tried to tell people. When people have that combination, you want, it's not planned in terms of precisely. They got into, remember the alibi that they had to go to the movies and and meet somebody and they kept saying, well, that was an alibi. And I kept saying, well, it's not an alibi if it doesn't work. So, and it didn't work. They went and came back and they had, they had me in this, this 10 o'clock and 1107. I'll never forget those two numbers. And that's only because neighbors had said, oh, I think I heard a noise at 10 o'clock or I think I heard a noise at 1107. And I thought the way they were trying to, the prosecution was trying to put this case together rather than just looking at it and logically looking at it. Uh, was it was really tough uh, to do that, but I did testify at the crime scene, called it disorganized. At that time, agents were very much into what's organized and what's disorganized. And for the disorganized, it wouldn't fall into the premeditated. They're trying to get me into the premeditated planned murder, so that they could have a first degree murder charge, which ultimately, I guess, the second top trial they did get. But. Um, those were, and I tried to also tell them that we had three levels of planning, if you will, or not planning, but the way any type of crime happened pre crime, the crime itself, and then post crime. The behavior can be all the same or can be very different. And in this case, it was all very different because even remember the shells, they had to, uh, they picked up the shells and they said, well, that showed planning. And I said, First of all, these two brothers had never shot any guns before. They had to take a lesson after they bought the guns. They really wanted a handgun. And there was a, I don't know, 14-day wait. So, and to me, the logic was if they wanted to kill them and planned it, they could have waited 14 days. But no, they couldn't. They had such eminent fear that something was going to happen. And they just played this in their own minds and it just built and built and built. So the emotion was there. When and, they- and there's a famous photo of them sitting, I think, center court at a Lakers playoff game, not not very long after the murders. And a lot of people say, well, look, these guys were on a spending spree. They just wanted the money. They were greedy. We already saw a comment to that effect. Uh, what is your response to those people? Well, what was the money used for? One of them, uh, one of them, I forget which one, bought three Rolex watches. Well, you can say, well, that's very expensive. Of course it is. They gave them all away. So they bought things, but then they gave them away. So it was never anything that was going to definitely benefit them. And the other important thing I felt, my opinion, is that the uncle was the executor of the, of the estate. He had to approve everything, right? I mean, an executor generally approved. So it wasn't that they were just taking this money and spending it. There was a certain process and structure to it. So I was never, I know that was the prosecution's theory. And of course it was an easy one for them to use all these rich kids and, um, and their brats. I think the prosecutor called them brats and, and, and also you can imagine and people would identify with this. Oh gee, I don't want, you know, my, uh, the idea that uh, boys that you raise could come and kill you was very hard, of course, for, um, so the identification, when you want to identify, you're going to have them identify with the, the, the prosecution got them identifying with the um, Kitty and, and Jose. And and have you had any contact with Eric or Lyle, but presumably Eric uh, since this time? Since I have, no, I have not. I've talked to Leslie 
but I haven't talked to um, to them. Well, they've been in separate prisons. It's been, you know, it's not been a very, and I didn't testify, obviously, at the second trial. Yeah, and now, uh, and now they're together uh, in San Diego. Um, Wendy, this is to you a quick Joel story, which I've shared on the show before, but uh, I grew up an average tennis player in New Jersey. A lot of people don't know that Lyle and Eric are from Princeton, New Jersey. They only moved to Beverly Hills. So I grew up playing at the East Brunswick Racquet Club on court two, and those guys were always on court one. I saw them every single day, basically, of my childhood. They were the phenomenal athletes. One went to Princeton to play tennis. Um, but I can very vividly remember this story. A bunch of my high school friends was kind of a close circle of people, and I was not very close friends with them. But my tennis coach, he was uh, subpoenaed for the trial. Um, long story short, a bunch of my friends were invited to their house in Princeton one night for a party, and someone spilled red wine on a white carpet. And the reaction that Lyle and Eric had, they said that their father was going to kill them. And it wasn't like, my dad's going to kill me. Ha ha ha. It was like, complete and utter fear. Uh, and at that point, the party broke up. They sent everyone home and everyone was kind of like, that was really weird. That was a really weird reaction. It obviously all made a lot of sense um, after all this came out. But that's my little uh, rush with Lyle and Eric. Uh, this is an interesting point, Wendy, from Kristen Grogan. Eric needs to be released, possibly Lyle too. I think Eric thought he had to do this because of what Lyle told him, that Lyle was being abused. But from a legal standpoint here, I've always looked at them as basically one entity. Uh, when Mark Aragos is doing what Mark Aragos is doing right now, does the court look at the brothers this way? Or could one of their... Well, they, convictions were they were tried together. And uh, the nature of the prosecution's case in terms of the theory of why they should be convicted is that they acted together, shared one state of mind, um, you know, it's, it is possible to try them separately. And when defendants, even if they acted at the same time, when they are tried separately, um, things are, things look very different all these years later in terms of how you want to get them out because, um, because you really might want to separate them. If one has a stronger case, you want to put all your resources into that person's case, see if you can get them out and then kind of piggyback, uh, the second case. Um, but, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, you know, two close brothers, even if only one was sexually abused, um, the closeness of brothers and what you would do to protect your beloved brother, it, it really, the mindset is sort of the same. And, and the thing that matters to me most is everybody seems to agree that this was emotional, filled to the brim and then some emotional killing. And, and in almost any other case, when you see what's called an overkill, whether it's a lot of stabbing or a lot of extra bullets, the law enforcement automatic reaction, you don't even need to be a genius or a law enforcement trained person to know this. The overkill is because of emotion, you know, you, because if you're just trying to kill someone because you want their money, one bullet to the head will do it or, or maybe two, but you don't have to do all this bloody gory stuff. So just that alone, you would think, would convey to the jury that this wasn't just uh, two guys who wanted money. Because if that were the case, they would have they would have done it cleaner, especially guys that are picking up casings afterwards, right? Just a couple of bullets and you're good to go. Um, the fact that this was such an overkill, to me, begs questions. As a juror, I want to know the answers to the questions. Where was that emotion coming from? And I want to make sense of that. And the trauma 
the, the trauma experience really fits nicely into it. And then you really, what, one of the things we really have to do better with jurors, and it was hard back then, and I'm sure Anne did a brilliant job. I haven't read the transcript, but you have to be able to put jurors in the shoes of these guys. And that is exceedingly difficult to do because number one, and this is the law in most If you've ever been a sexual, you get off the jury. Think about how sick that is. Think about how unjust and outrageous that is. If you, who could understand her state of mind, are considered too biased to sit in judgment. That's bizarre, beyond bizarre. But guess what's not true? If you've ever been a sex offender, a pornographer, you know, all the things Jose was, um, you are allowed to sit in judgment. Nobody even asks. The only kinds of sex offenders who aren't allowed to sit as jurors are the ones who've been convicted, and that number is about 1%. So all the sex offenders and all the pornographers are allowed to sit in judgment in sex crimes cases just like this back then and today because we don't screen them out. We don't ask them if we don't ask them. Do you, do you have a history of being a sex offender? Have you ever raped a child? I mean, and I know there's a Fifth Amendment piece to this, but the way to ask the question would be to say to the potential jurors, um, have you or anyone close to you ever been accused of committing a sex crime? Period. Then you don't have to violate your Fifth Amendment rights, right? You can just say, raise your hand and say, well, I know someone. And, and boom, you're off. If we, think, if we think a victim is too biased, then you're off too. We got to get rid of both sides or we let both sides in. And the reality is, even today, the people who could have understood the Menendez brothers' state of mind because they too were raped by their fathers or by their Uncle Charlie or by somebody, whether it was child sexual abuse that was pervasive or in a one time incident, they know trauma. They know what happens to the mind and to the brain. They understand what seems to be irrational. They understand why the irrational is quite rational when, you, when you've experienced what they've been through. Those are the jurors who should be sitting in judgment in these cases, and they never, ever get selected. They get booted. And the defense doesn't even have to object. They just get booted. They don't even have to use one of their peremptories to get rid of them. That's why we have so many not guilty verdicts in this country. And people don't. I mean, I know people who know this is a systemic problem, and there is no one in any state in this country doing anything about that. So you wonder why we have injustices. Sometimes they go in this direction in a case like this, where the victims have killed someone, but it's more often the case where the victim is testifying about someone who raped her, and the, and the jurors don't understand why she behaved so weird after the rape. Well, that's weird. I wouldn't do that if I was raped. Well, first of all, you don't know, because if you were raped, you wouldn't be on the jury. And you don't know what it feels like to be in her shoes. You don't know what trauma feels like. Don't you go passing judgment on how she's supposed to behave afterwards. So, so my concern about this case as a symbol of that problem is that we're not going to learn from it. That we're going to continue to perpetuate the problem. And it won't just be um, victims who become so desperate they kill. Which, And that's not that rare. By the way, I don't know if you remember the um, the King Boys case. I think it was from Florida. Similar case. Two brothers, very young, killed their father. And everyone's like, oh, those boys, what's wrong with them? They're terrible. Isn't that terrible? No, I was like, he was obviously raping them. That doesn't, they don't just kill. They don't just kill. So my concern is that in a case like this, where the victims end up killing, 
Number one, we need more systemic appreciation for how they got to that stage. And not only their psyche, but how the system, the system is built to insulate those children from being able to call police, from being able to be protected, from feeling like they have an opportunity or resources or someone they can turn to. When you're a kid and you realize no one's going to believe me, no one's going to help me, my father's too rich, my father's too powerful, that's a, that's a form of slavery that you're living in that family environment. And the system is doing that to you because we don't offer those kinds of kids any hope. And when they become hopeless, they become desperate, they kill. That's not vigilantism. That's I have no choice. So it's for kids in this kind of case that I feel terrible, but I also feel terrible for the kids who testify in a court of law, this man raped me and the jurors can't understand them because we we don't we just don't have that sense of appreciation for what it feels like. How so so the question then is how do you help a juror feel what they felt? That is a challenge. I'm not sure I know the answer to it, but sometimes you have to make comparisons and you say have you ever you know been in an automobile accident or some really horrendously traumatic incident happened to you in your life? Do you remember how your brain didn't work for a while after that happened? It's The problem is you don't know if any jurors have had something similar in terms of trauma. Most people have been traumatized by something. I mean, it's just the nature of being a human. But because you don't know, you can't speak to the jury and engage them and bring them to the table, bring them to that sense of understanding, get them to feel what those boys felt. It's a near impossible task because of how our system is designed. Our system is designed to make children hopeless, to leave them no choice but to kill. And then when they kill, we put them in jail. Welcome to America. And we see that to a certain degree going on right now uh, with the Idaho Four, the uh, two surviving roommates, a lot of people pointing the finger at those victims saying they should have reacted in a certain way to make a comparison there. But if you want to know why Wendy Murphy is as successful as she is, all you have to do is listen to that passion and you will understand uh, that is the key to succeeding. I'm going to make both my daughters watch this, even though they're too young, but eventually I'll make them watch this. Um, and back to you, a couple, just a, a quick stroll down memory lane here. Not only did the state and, and prosecution, um, you know, not, not only was sexual abuse kind of omitted by the judge here, but the state went so far as to say this abuse is, quote unquote, fiction. Judge Stanley Weisberg, he warned jurors not to take Ann Burgess's testimony as gospel. He came out and literally said that. Do not take doc, what, Dan, what Dr. Ann Burgess is going to tell you. Do not take as gospel. Um, Leah from Austria and says, I have a question for you. I listened to an interview with Ann about two years ago, and she talked about Eric drawing pictures for her about certain events. Uh, can you explain that more? Before Ann answers that, Ann went on to say that Eric referred to oral sex. He had a name for it. It was called knees, as in like bend your knees. Uh, Ann says that children have their own terminology, and he used to have a nightmare called the green face nightmare, which included a cow, a horse, and a green face, which got larger while he got smaller. And then the green face turns into his father, which chases him through the darkness. So uh, obviously there's a lot going on here. But Anne, uh, if you want to respond to any of that, but also 
uh, these drawings? Did these drawings help you? Did they help Eric? Well, the drawings, I always, if uh, if it's appropriate, try to get them, to, I will say sketch. With kids, I'll say drawings, but I would get them to sketch. And because that week prior to the actual shootings was so important, I had Eric draw each night or each day, and they were profound. They really were. He even what you just described, he drove one of his nightmares by the father's green monster and then turns into this, uh, his face comes through. And I use that as a way to get at the emotion and the thinking and would, then I have something concrete. So they would draw, for example, one was the, uh, the toupee incident, as I called it. And you could go back and forth over it instead of just sitting there with someone and saying, well, now tell me what this happened and tell me that. You could say, now, what does this mean here that you have like, uh, he would put movement lines over things to show his emotion. And we, we could spend at least an hour just going through one of the drawings. Um, so I thought that was really important. We weren't sure if we were going to use them in the um, in the trial. We Obviously, we didn't. Uh, they were making so much. There was so much. Uh, I think the other thing that was important to know is how people would, would try to make fun and mock the kinds of theories that I was presenting, which was the research, uh, the, you know, the snails theory, they, they talked about that. And of course, the the judge, as you said, he said, it's, uh, you can't, uh, it's, you can't believe it. Or, or I think he, whatever he said, I've never heard a judge specifically pick out one expert. Now, maybe Wendy has, she can fill us in, but uh, there are other experts, so I don't know why he picked on me to, to say, don't believe her. But I was trying to give him the best of the research, and the research is there. The research now is everywhere, so it's not like it's brand new. It's You just do neurobiology of trauma, put it in Google, and, and lots of stuff comes up. So that explains the drawings. Uh, there was a second part to the question, Joel. What was the, what was the other one? Um, I think we we're talking about... Um names that uh, oh, the names that he used yeah yeah he uh and and because of the drawings i was able to use that he could la label them and so forth and you know there was physical evidence that they really didn't want to pay attention to he had a, a hospital record when he was six or eight that showed the um a soft palate in his throat injury and also a whole lot of sore throats and they said oh all kids have sore throats yeah a lot of kids have sore throats, but they don't go to the hospital for a sore throat. I mean, there can be, it, it might not have been written as um, that, that, uh, of what was in his throat. But anyway, uh, there certainly was, I felt, more evidence that could have been highlighted for a jury. And don't forget, in the first trial, half of the jury believed it. Yeah. You know, they were ready. I don't know whether they would have acquitted, but they certainly would not have given first degree. So the, it made sense to certain ones. And I do believe I, I I haven't seen the actual numbers, but I think the half that believed they were female and then the, the half that didn't believe it were male. Mm -hmm. So I think that gets to that the males just could not believe uh, or did not want to believe that fathers could do this to their sons. And, and then yeah, there, there, there are plenty of cases out there. Yeah, there's a this is a little graphic, everyone. So if you're squeamish, uh, 
earmuff yourself right now, but uh, you, you brought this up in court and saying that there were certain details he provided to you that you just couldn't make up. Like you wouldn't be able to cover your tracks. And one of, one of them was that um, Eric testified that he used to put cinnamon in his father's coffee and oatmeal, hoping to make oral sex more palatable Uh, in your interviews with him. um, When he was in jail, Eric told you he had his own special way of describing the abuse. Um, I mean, he just offered up this information about this cinnamon to change the taste, presumably, of his dad's semen. Uh, That's something that, I mean, if it was someone baking it, just would never think to bring up. Is that right? No, no, he volunteered this. This isn't something I specifically asked. So I thought that was very important. And yes, he, he did say that. I don't know if he did testify to it, but it certainly was in my notes. Yes. Uh, Letitia here says, uh, based on your personal evaluation of Eric, Dr. Burgess, do you think that had the killings not taken place, Eric would have ultimately killed himself over the abuse? What are your thoughts on that? Well, he certainly was more suicidal. And actually, that was the reason that I think some of this came out after the when he was seeing the uh, therapist that they were the family was concerned that he was getting suicidal. So that certainly was a possibility. And I think if the if you read the letter that the cousin received from him, it really gives a very powerful um account of how he was feeling at the time. And I I always felt the main reason that he had in his mind is he thought he could get away from the father by going to UCLA. And the father wanted him to go to UC Berkeley. And so the father, they claimed, was just disappointed, but he was more than disappointed. He said, you're going to come home. He was going to get him a moped. I I can't, I, (laughs) to, to, to take to and from so he could come home. Um, and, and Eric just, that was not going to be something he could tolerate. Hmm. That was his one chance to get away college in a dorm. And the father was going to control that. Uh, Bonnie Lee Lopez, just to show you that there is some divisiveness here. Uh, so now the bleeding hearts feel the jury verdict means nothing and we should just let the killers free. She's been vocal, uh, in the chat area of this show. Every time we do this show that they should remain in prison. Um, Wendy, to you, uh, to the letter here, Eric sent a letter to his cousin, a guy named Andy Cano, who has since passed. uh, And this letter resurfaced recently. uh, But he sent this letter uh, about eight months before the killings. And the quote is the following. Uh, This is from Eric to Andy, his cousin. I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I cannot explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. Um, I never know when it's going to start to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put this out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know, Dad, like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. So we've got the documentary, Roy Rossello, and now this letter surfaced, I believe, Andy Cano's mother, who is still alive. Andy died of, I think, a heroin overdose. Uh, So this had a ripple effect. I don't know if it was directly related, but there's a lot of trauma, obviously, in the family. Um, Wendy, does this letter hold legal water? Uh, Emotionally, obviously, but legally, is it something that will work uh, 
in favor of the Menendez well, brothers in front of a judge. You know, as a matter of evidence, any statement of the defendant that's relevant is admissible, and it and it, it's okay if it's hearsay, which is what a letter is. Um, and it's certainly relevant. It may need some explanation because it doesn't say sexual abuse. And I do think that's partly why it has a lot of credence. Um, he didn't say, he was doing this, let's just say, it's, let's assume that he was clever enough to begin faking the sexual abuse stuff a year before the killing and he was laying the groundwork for a good defense. Um, that's kind of a weird way to do it because he doesn't say, which is what a contrived plan would really probably say if it were written down. Uh, my father's raping me and I just wanted to, you know, make sure someone knew because I'm finally ready to tell and so forth. There's a, there's a lot missing in that letter. Um, so it doesn't come across as contrived for any specific purpose. In that sense, it has, it has credibility to me. Um, and it indicates that there was a, they had a conversation previously and the conversation was was what we, he was referencing, that this was an ongoing thing. They must have had some kind of a conversation where the cousin maybe suggested a solution. But again, it's not clear from the letter. Um, it's relevant. It, but, but the bottom line is, what does it actually prove? Let's assume some judge says, I'm going to let it in. And let's say, you know, some juror in the future, if they retry the case, which they won't, um, if, if these guys get out, they're going to walk. The, the, this case will never be retried. But if some juror in the future got to see that letter, what would they think of it? You'd have to be pretty dense not to see how that, number one, corroborates the testimony that he was sexually abused because of how it's written and, and the way it's written and the fact that it's written and, you know, to sort of not say the obvious. Um, and and then again, you know, what do you think as a juror? What do you think about the fact that you now believe that this sexual abuse did happen? Is that enough for you as a juror to find um, this guy not guilty? There are plenty of jurors in this country who would say, "I believe he was raped. I believed he was. I believe he was abused. I believed that subjectively he feared he was going to die. I believe all of that." And I'm still going to find him guilty because we don't want vigilantism. We don't want people killing in response to um, rage, fill in the blank, however you want to characterize his state of mind. Um, but in fact, we live under a constitution that demands of us civility, right? It's not only uh, that we have strict black and white rules of law and whether, whether this behavior fits in the box or not, you know, meet, determines whether you win or lose. The reason we have humans sitting in judgment as jurors is because they bring their not so black and white life experiences to the table. And that's part of why I'm so outraged that jurors who have been sexually abused aren't allowed to sit in judgment in these cases. It's outrageous. To me, it's official government-sanctioned discrimination, primarily against women. Um, but in this case, really against children, too. But, you know, for, for, for this letter to be the thing that makes all the difference, you'd have to be a fool to think that this letter is the be all and the end all. The, the real question for the court is going to be, is there credible evidence, regardless of the letter, is there enough credible evidence to believe that these two guys um, acted out of some kind of traumatic, threatening, really terroristic fear of their parents. And if there is, 
then the right result, regardless of what the law says, regardless of the black and white law, the right result is they probably should have been convicted of manslaughter and it's time to let them go. I want to emphasize this thing about terrorism because I think it's probably a word we, we don't use often enough in this context, but it's the right word. We all know a lot more about trauma today than we did back then, but we haven't done a good enough job understanding how the word terrorism applies to a case like this. What does terrorism mean? To us, we think of, you know, some foreign nation is going to come shoot bombs at us. That's one kind of terrorism, or they, you know, they, they threaten to do something in, in order to control your behavior. But terrorism actually means, even in a, in a micro sense, in a domestic sense, that, that a person doesn't act freely. They don't live their life in a free manner because they are terrorized that by someone because, they're, because they know something awful is going to happen if they live their life freely. That is not just against the law. That is inhumane on a grand scale, globally, in all countries, at all times. Terrorism, whether you do it to another nation or to a child, the nature of terrorizing someone is so grotesque that it eclipses even the idea of killing in response, because to, to terrorize a person is to take away their free will. And then you can't convict them of a crime for which they had no free will. That's really what this case is about. I don't want to get hung up on the details of what did the law say about this? And what about self-defense? And I, No, this is a much bigger issue. It's a much bigger, um, it's kind of beyond the rule of law. That if you make a child desperate, if you give them no hope, if you terrorize them, this is what happens, and we own that. And the right thing to do, the right thing to do if you believe there was sexual abuse, and I do, and I don't think there's any reason not to believe that this child was sexually abused over the course of time in horrendous ways. If you believe that's true, then there should be no reluctance to let them both out now. They've suffered enough. Should they have been punished? Probably. Is 28 years enough? Absolutely. And then some. To me, it's it's too much. And when they come out, how do we treat them as, as guys who, you know, for the wrong reasons, got people to support them getting out of prison? No. We should treat them with kindness. We should treat them with understanding. We should listen to them. We should urge them to speak. And we should be open-minded that maybe we got this wrong. Maybe, and I don't say that about many cases. You will not find me anywhere saying, oh yeah, let the bad guy out. That's a great idea. But in a case like this, because I believe in the, the, the grander picture, I believe in the power of civil, civility, the power of our government to enhance civility. And you enhance civility sometimes when you let the bad guy out. And right now those guys are Googling your number once again, a few more things to get through and then I'll let the two uh, Bostonians on their way, on their way. But Mia here, um, and I don't know if you care to address this. What do you think of Alan Dershowitz? Of course, a Harvard uh, law professor, his opinion on the case and his use of the term abuse excuse to dismiss the brother's claim of abuse. Any comment? 
Well, uh, yeah, that was a big one up here. That was used a lot, the abuse excuse. And I think the judge at Weisberg in the case even used that at some point. Well, I would say that Professor Ber uh, Dershowitz has never had a client that has been abused. So he wouldn't understand it. I think everything that Wendy has said is something that he wouldn't necessarily understand. But it's uh, it's clear that he doesn't understand what trauma is or uh, about abuse and victimization. I just think he needs to uh, he needs a, a client that uh, can educate him. Mm. Well, that is that's, that's that. being very gentle. And what I would say <laughs> what, about what, what the good professor me I've just lectured in Dershowitz's class, by the way. He, he he taught criminal law, and when he taught a section on rape, and I came in to guest lecture, I almost needed therapy myself after the class. It was awful. He not only doesn't understand trauma, although he probably does. I mean, he's certainly intellectually capable, but I think he is so comfortable representing the traumatizer, the the person yeah. who's destroying lives, the person who's doing the raping and the sexual abusing. He's so comfortable representing them that it's just not in his repertoire to care because he his job as a defense attorney is to crush all of that but i can guarantee you this if the right client came along and the the, the check was on the table and dershowitz's job because he's really only an appellate attorney he doesn't try cases he does the appellate stuff mm -hmm. i mean he's very talented he does he really is a very bright guy I can't take that away but he would never shy away from using trauma if he had to, to argue on appeal in a case of his that his client deserves to be let out of jail, he would absolutely do it because it's ethical. It's it's his obligation as an attorney. And there's cash on the table. Did I mention the cash on the table? I mean, lawyers, you know, sometimes lawyers do stupid things. They put on nonsense defenses. They And, and let's be honest. You, as a defense attorney, can hire an expert to testify that up is down and black is white and all kinds of crap. If you pay an expert enough, they can and they do lie under oath in courts across this country every day, all the time. It's the nature of our system. We let experts lie under oath. And I believe that breeds the sort of cynicism that makes jurors ask crazy questions about, um, you know, corruption and all this stuff. Like, it is a kind of corruption. It is a kind of corruption if you let experts lie under oath, but this system does. Now, mind you, the prosecution doesn't have as much flexibility to hire experts to lie. They're really, their hands are tied a bit more because they can get in trouble. Their evidence can get suppressed. The judge can dismiss the charges to punish the prosecution if they don't play fair. We don't require the defense to play fair. We, re we constitutionally require them to try to win. And win at any cost is the name of the game. So they are allowed to do crazy things. And on that point, I can agree with Dershowitz that you can make up some kind of cockamamie idea, just pull it out of the air, slap it onto an expert witness's bio, and, and they're going to show up in court and make some kind of hay with it. And you're going to turn to the jury and say, you have to let them go because of this gobbledygook thing that just had this defense I just made up out of my ass. You can do that in this country. In that sense, Dershowitz is right. But on this issue, he's a fool. Love it. Uh, Tilo, who's in Boston with the Boston accent, the whole nine yards. Um, and we hear this comment almost reflexively anytime there's an abuse case. She says, I just really want to know why the Menudo person, Roy Rossello, waited this long. How do you respond to people that say, well, they waited three decades? Well, it's not unusual, first of all, and especially when it's a male. 
I can tell you that they may never, ever, and uh, ever tell. And sometimes they'll only tell if they have a witness that said, I saw him do this to you. It's just something that is more or less ingrained in the uh, male gene. That doesn't surprise me. It's, uh, I think that we have to educate, and, and we are trying to get that out and trying to look at the red flags and, and get the uh, identify it earlier. I, I don't, um, unfortunately, it's just, that's just the way it is. It's been case after case I've had like that when it's male, on male. Uh, Caleb Dallas. Especially men. Especially men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't defend us. Sorry. Katie told her therapist two weeks before she was killed that she had uh, sick and disgusting secrets. We now know what that is. Uh, someone who doesn't is Papa Bear from Moscow, Idaho, a place that's near and dear to our heart. Uh, shout out to Papa Bear out there. Um, and a couple more quick things, and I promise I'll let you go. But um, so things kind of got to a uh, crescendo level at the end. Um, there were these recurring nightmares, but you also said that. Uh, you felt Eric was out of options and there was a fear. I think he had that Lyle um, was going to expose uh, them. Probably not the best word to use there, but you get what I'm saying that he was going to come out and out the father as a molester. Uh, do you recall that um, was Eric's fear that Lyle was going to, you know, blow the whistle. Was that also what kind of propelled them into action? Yeah, you really have, when you look at the dynamics, it's, it was a very, as Wendy's already said, a compli complicated case. Not only do you have the dynamics with the parents, you have dynamics between the two brothers. And that was trying to keep the secret. That's, you know, a secret is only a secret as long as it's not, uh, no one tells. And once it's out, power is gone. So there's a lot of power in having a secret. And yeah. that would mean a lot to Eric if uh, Lyle in any way brought the secret out. So I thought that was really, really important. And and another very big part of this, um, Dr. Ozeal, uh, Leon Jerome Ozeal. So Eric was ordered to see this guy. Um, he's since been um, strict of his psychology license. Um, he made him sign something that Ozeal could tell the parents anything Eric was telling them in therapy, which obviously goes contrary to what therapy is all about. Um, and then on November 11th, prior, I guess, to these or after the murders, he had him uh, record what amounted to some sort of confession. What is the deal with Dr. Ozeal? And his testimony was admitted. Right. And it really um, helped shape the a lot of people think the uh, jury's decision here. Correct. Right. There was a taped confession. Uh, and that, that was one of the things that the judge had to rule on whether it get admitted or not. The interesting thing about that was it helped both the prosecution and it also helped the defense. So it was a kind of a wash, if you will. But he was, what Ozeal did is instead of saying, you, we've got to take this to the law enforcement or we've got to tell someone about this. He said, oh, let me, he gave him his card, said, let's, let's talk about going in and making a deal on some kind of um, money that you've got, we can build something. I mean, he was trying to help them spend the money where he would be involved. I mean, it was really very so unethical and unbelievably so. But um, the, the way it came out, of course, is his uh, girlfriend was sitting outside and Smith, Smith, I think was her name. 
and she heard it and he wanted her outside because he was afraid that something would happen. And she heard what had happened. And I think that's how it finally came out where, where she went to the police or, or, or somehow. But at any rate, it was certainly um, that whole, how does the secret get told was as much a part of this whole case as, as anything. Uh, Wendy Murphy, I'm sure you will uh, get a uh, sort of a giggle out of this. So Ozeal, this therapist, was stripped of his license in 1997. He had been accused of breaking confidentiality rules and having sex with female patients. So he surrendered, surrendered his license. He's now listed on his website as just Jerry, currently in the business of hosting relationship, marriage, and sex seminars in Portland, Oregon. So um, this is our expert witness. Consultant to the porn industry. <laughs> um, uh, what about know, the you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> when he, uh, Nightwood says, why didn't their appeal succeed since the judge disallowed testimony of sexual assault in the second trial? Why did that go nowhere? Yeah, and I guarantee you that was raised, although I haven't read the second appeal decision Um this, the, the appeal decision about the second trial and how it was treated differently. But what I would say is this, virtually all of the so-called uh, new DNA cases that you're, you're seeing today get reversed. Those convictions are getting reversed today. And it was years ago that those convictions went forward. And in, and in like 90% of those cases, the so-called Innocence Project cases, the guys are actually guilty. But the DNA technology wasn't around back then. So now they come forward 30 years later and say, well, we now have technology where we can test the evidence. And had it been around back then, we would have done this test and the jury would have heard it and it might have made a difference. So even though they're technically guilty and basically everybody agrees they're guilty, would that evidence have been admissible if DNA had been around back then? Yes. Would the jury have heard it? Yes. What would the result have been? We don't know. We don't know. We can speculate that it still would have been a guilty verdict, but we don't know. So this case is kind of like that. What is different all these years later, even though they already lost all their appeals, what is different? And the answer is, first of all, the Menudo person coming forward, that's new evidence that's kind of like new DNA evidence. It's new. And so you get to have your day in court. You get to go to the judge and say, had this evidence been around back then, would it have been admitted? Yes. Would it have made a difference? You know, you argue, yes, it would have. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but you get to make that argument. And for that reason, you get to also point at the appellate court and say, look, even the appellate court got it wrong because they didn't have access to this evidence. Had the appellate court had access to this Menudo Singer's um, testimony, the appellate court would have felt differently about the exclusion of this evidence from the second trial. That's what I would argue. And, be, you know, there's no hard and fast rule about how, it, how a court today is going to feel about the fact that an earlier appeal was upheld. But the point you're going to make as a defense attorney is things are different now. And here's how they're different. And this and whether justice becomes clear, whether what justice means in this case becomes clear 30 years later or at the time of trial, it doesn't matter. The time to do justice is when you know about the evidence. It's when the thing happens that gives you new clarity about, about the past. There's always an opportunity in this country, which is a wonderful thing about our Bill of Rights. There's always an opportunity 
to file something with the court to say what happened to me in the past was wrong, whether it's new technology, new evidence, new anything. If it comes along and it really does raise a sincere question about the integrity of that verdict, who cares what the appellate court said? If the integrity of that verdict deserves to be uh, challenged, thank God we live in a country where you can always do that. You can always go to court and mount a challenge. And we'll see what happens in this case. But this is one of those rare cases. And I don't say this often. This is one of those rare cases where when I heard they were filing this and when I heard about the Menudo um, information and when I, you know, when I kind of took another look at this story, I thought, oh, my God, I was gypped. I was gypped of the truth when I watched this case and was talking about it as a legal analyst. I was lied to. I deserve to know. And I'm not even a juror, but I felt gypped because I was speaking on television about this case. And that and it was wrong. What I was saying was wrong. What I want to say now is let these guys out and have a parade. Have a parade in the name of justice. And then say to other children, use this case as an example to say to other children and young people who've been through something similar, tell, don't kill, tell, and you too can have a parade. You know, like, in other words, we need to make heroes out of the kids who tell. So they feel like it's a good thing. It might be a scary thing, but if they also think that they will be embraced, that it will be celebrated, that they will be seen as heroic. When we, when somebody is an eyewitness to a bank robbery and they tell, they call police, they offer themselves up as a witness, we call them heroes. We put them on the front page of the local paper. Eyewitness to bank robbery saves the day, testifies in court. The bad guy robber is now locked up. Yay, you're a hero. We need to do that to child sex abuse victims, to women who are raped, to women who report domestic abuse, to men who are beaten or harmed in some fashion. We need to reward people who come forward, whether it's about a bank robbery or about an abuse of their own body. We haven't conveyed that message in this country at all in the way we should, because, again, we're trying to promote civility. You don't get civility if all the injured people stay silent. So to promote civility, we need to reward people for coming forward, even if what they're reporting is body just them. This crime to themselves is not personal. A crime to one child abuse incident against one child is an offense against society. It's not a personal problem. It's not a private matter. It's a public concern. It's a public matter. It's an offense against society. And we really need, I think, to use this case as a launch pad from which we start to teach other people who are suffering in similar, often behind closed doors and who feel hopeless, don't feel hopeless. Speak. Tell, we will reward you, we will embrace you, we will help you, we will support you. Just getting that message out is so vital. And this case is a really good example of why you don't want to force kids to keep things secret. It's not just about the pain of secrecy. It's about, it's about the harm to our entire legal system. When you have made the message clear that there's no benefit in coming forward, we need to reverse that. And that's why I say have a parade when these guys get out. I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but, you know, have a parade so that other people say, wow, you mean if I tell, I'm not going to suffer? I'm actually going to be embraced and loved and supported and hugged? Yes, you will. Yes, you will.
And we are going to wrap in one second. Janet says, Dr. Burgess is a genius, a pioneer for women, as is Wendy Murphy. I spoke to Neri Yanklin. She's uh, one of the directors of this movie, Menudo and Menendez, Boys Betrayed. Um, and she said to me that cases of patricide are extremely rare and triggered by one of two things, mental illness or hor horrible abuse. This is interesting. If Eric and Lyle Menendez had been 18 and 20-year-old young women who had been raped and threatened by their father since they were five years old, would the system have shown them mercy after 20, 25, 30 years? Do you think it would be a different story if they were the Menendez sisters, not the brothers? I think so. I think we yeah. punish women much more harshly when they kill. We're, we're brutal to women. Women suffer far worse punishment when they act because it's inconsistent with our cultural expectations of them. Oh, she wasn't a nice girl. She pulled a gun. We're so angry when women get violent. And, and, and the studies are very clear that when women commit a certain crime, the same kind of crime a guy did, the women get much longer punishments, much harsher punishments. So, no, I don't think there would have been mercy. No, absolutely not. And you expect do. males to be aggressive. So yeah. in some ways, when they act aggressive, we're like, ah, that's what guys do. Now, this is a little bit different, but it is all about social expectations in terms of how harshly we punish people. That's interesting. But Anne, you think that yeah. maybe... Yeah, I think that men would be more inclined to uh, entertain the abuse issue, where they certainly weren't when it was uh, male on male. So and, and certainly now I think that there there would be more. But I, I hear what you what Wendy's saying. I just uh that's often asked. I think that's an interesting question about whether they had been two sisters and this had happened. I'm trying to think if there are any you know, and there are studies of st oh, okay. there are studies of jurors, which is very interesting, which is a little different than what Anne said the jurors did here, that show female jurors on average, are much more likely to vote not guilty in a rape case where the victim is a woman. And that's because they're they're almost, and, and I'm sorry, let me be clear, they're more likely to vote not guilty if the perpetrator is not a stranger. If the perpetrator is a stranger, women will vote guilty in a heartbeat because they feel afraid that he could do that to them. And so they vote guilty because it makes them feel safer. The reverse is true if the perpetrator is not a stranger. Then they think, oh, I can't identify with her because that would make my husband dangerous or my boyfriend or the guy that I was dating in college. So they tend to vote not guilty because it scares them to think that a guy like that would be seen as it makes them feel better to, to think that that's not a rape or you know that she's not telling the truth. The studies are very consistent on that. This case is a little different because it's male on male. And I believe, right. Anne, when she says the males felt a certain way, especially back then, the notion right. of, a, of a man, is, you know, just listening to the evidence and saying, I don't know any father who would do that to a son, so this must be a lie. That inclination goes back to what I said. You have to pick your jury carefully. In a case like this, a defense attorney's yeah. job should have been, I want to make sure that there are men on this jury who aren't homophobic, for example, right, who are not like just freaked out about the very idea of male on male. Um, act, um, I hate to call it activity because this was a brutal crime, but you know, you don't want somebody to vote guilty because they hate gay men. And that could have been a part of this case. I don't know how the jurors were screened, but, but that would be outrageous too in a different form than what we were talking about before the discrimination that jurors bring to the process. It includes things like, I would never believe that a man would do that because it grosses me out. That You shouldn't be allowed to be a juror if that's how you feel. 
Right. Uh, and Letitia yeah. says, uh, Dr. Burgess, so many people in this chat seem incapable of understanding what learned helplessness is. Do you mind explaining it? Uh, what is learned helplessness? Well, learned helplessness is um, that that really started with the uh, domestic violence case where the woman, it's usually going to be a, a woman that is unable to act in, in her defense aggressively or anyway because of the kind of codependence on the partner, usually going to be a male. Hmm. Um, Wendy Murphy, you know her now, if you didn't before. She is a professor of sexual violence at New England Law Boston, where she also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. As you heard her say, she uh, taught a class in Alan Dershowitz's classroom at the Harvard Law School. She's a former visiting scholar. Um, your final thoughts, Wendy, and this question here, if the dad was the pedophile, answer me this. Why did they kill the mother, brutally kill the mother who was trying to crawl away from them? Uh, that is something that always comes up, Wendy. Your response yep, and yep, your final yep, thoughts. And, and by uh, the way, your, your Boston serial, serial rapist, accused rapist, he's out now. Um, he bonded out, as you predicted. Yep. But yes, your final yep. thoughts. We'll, see we'll see whether he uh, leaves the country. I hope they took his passport. Because um, he probably can afford to give up five hundred thousand, I, I, I just hope he shows up again. We'll find out. He's due back in court next month. Um, you know, my, my thoughts about this case, although I have said them repeatedly, and I don't want to repeat myself, but focusing on just the mother, um, the, the the question bothers me when someone says, "If the father was the rapist, why kill the mother?" I, when I was prosecuting child sex cases, um, child sex abuse cases. Many of them had what I called incest mother problems. These were mothers who, either through willful ignorance or, or open participation, were not protecting their children or were wanting to harm their children. And I saw them as co-conspirators. I saw them as co-defendants. I saw them as uncharged co-conspirators. I wanted to charge them. Um, and it wasn't. I would feel the same way if the, if the reverse was true and the mother was doing the raping and the father was non-protective. So this isn't really about bias between males and females as parents. It's if one of them is doing the raping and the other one is allowing it to happen, which by the way, is not that uncommon in this country, especially now that the porn industry is so crazy and billions and billions of dollars and the number one makers of child porn in this country are parents. You, you know, it's sometimes the mother doing it, but it's often the, the father or the boyfriend is using the kids, making money behind closed doors, and the mother's letting it happen either because she has a drug habit she needs fed or she needs money for whatever. So I blame I blame the mother just as much. It's just like being a getaway driver for a bank robbery. You deserve equal punishment, equal prosecution. You're equally responsible. Now, you can argue to me that the mother was also being abused and she shouldn't be held again. That's a case-by-case -case analysis. But generally speaking, if the mother is not protecting the child or if the father is not protecting the child and the other parent is doing the abusing, I, I don't see them as legally distinct. I would like both of them to be prosecuted and equally punished, kind of like Lyle and Eric, right? How they, they both did the crime, but in terms of what the motive was, the fact that they kind of came together in the same state of mind to commit the crime Everybody says, well, you know, they're equally responsible, even though only one of them was sexually abused, we, we assume. 
but you can't break things up sometimes, right? Because it's about the, the authority and the responsibility of the people involved. So to me, as a mom, I have five children. And I think of, I, I just can put myself in this position of thinking, if I knew what was happening, and you know, my husband was doing something grotesque, I should be prosecuted because it's my job to protect my children. It's my, I don't have to be a mother bear to be aware that it's my job to protect them, I would expect to be prosecuted to the fullest extent on par with the perpetrator because because the children's dependency on you as a parent, mother or father, is is a hundred percent. They are one hundred percent. And if they feel hopeless in their house because they're being raped, that's not the where the hopelessness comes from. It also comes from the fact that their other protector is watching it happen and doing nothing. In some ways, that's worse. I hate to say the feeling in terms of the relationship with the mother is different, but it can be. And and you know, for the, I know there's evidence in this case that the mother would hear the rape going on and, sh- and and turn the television up to drown out the noise. That is the most vile betrayal of the mother-child relationship imaginable and it doesn't matter to me that she's not in the room doing the raping it's almost worse that she's putting up the volume that level of betrayal you, you a child cannot recover from that a child cannot recover from that so that's how i view it is um absolutely they should have killed her too. and when i say should have killed her nobody should have been killed let me be clear about that but what they did and when they did it and why they did it, the fact that they felt the same way about both of them is logical to me. Next time I bring Wendy on, I'm going to make sure she has coffee so she has some energy. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Ann Burgess is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse. She is the author of A Killer by Design, among her Long, long list of awards and accolades. In 2016, she was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing. That's why Dakota Fanning is making a docu-series about her. And that's why Mindhunter was a success on Netflix. It's uh, based loosely on Anne's uh, work at the FBI in the early days. Um, Legend Anne, to you, the godmother of profiling. Um... First of all, Amy in Boston says, are you able to be an expert again in one of their trials if it ever got to that? My question to you, if you want to answer that, is if um, you were subpoenaed or summoned by a, a, a judge, what would you say to the judge if he wanted your opinion on this case now? I would say my opinion hasn't changed. I would happily testify to what I've done before. I I, I think it's been a strengthened with the evidence that's come forward. I think that uh, has been well discussed tonight. So you you wouldn't waver at all? No. Why would I I waver? And here's Sally Vela. Are they safe and sane enough to let out of prison? Do you feel that these would be, uh, that they would ever offend again, uh, Anne, if they were let out? No, I don't think they would offend again. I think that the research also shows, both clinically and and the research, that when it's a targeted specific person for whatever reason, that it doesn't extend to any anyone else. Um, I don't know what Wendy thinks, but that would be my opinion: is that they are safe. I think the bigger thing is: can you imagine being locked up for thirty years and how our our society has changed? You know, um, I don't know. They don't usually get. You know, 
iPhones and all that kind of thing. That I've heard people that have been locked up that long that just have a terrible time adjusting to all the changes. So it will be interesting. Now, I know that they both have married and so that they certainly have been kept up on some of the changes, but that would be a shock yeah. to have to. Uh, it'd be very interesting just to talk to them about that. How do you adjust after 30 years? Yeah, it's crazy. Marshall yeah. Dove, because I she is a trailblazer. What's most that? prisons have programs to help, so let's hope they have a program, and okay. let's hope we find out. <laughs> uh, this person says, because she's a trailblazer ahead of her time, as we know, and would have seen all this way back then before the others. And a final comment here. We love Van. We love Wendy. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, not one, but I think we're doing two shows. And I don't know what either of them are yet because Mark Garagos is leaving me hanging, but he might come on at noon Eastern. So you've got to follow me on Twitter now at podcast STS. And I will tell you what time the shows are tomorrow uh, and when they will be, what they will be on. Wendy Murphy, do you believe in aliens? We did that last night. Are they here, Wendy Murphy? Oh, are I'm smart enough to say I have no idea. Ann Burgess, are there is there alien life on our planet, Ann? I don't know. I can't answer that either. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope so. That would be exciting. Then there'll be other things to worry about besides Democrats yeah. and Republicans. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Boston. Love you, Newton Mass. I went to Brandeis and Waltham. Love you, Waltham. All right. Till next time. Thank you all. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.